Hi, welcome back to Excited, episode 199. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I'm not too bad. How about yourself? I'm I'm doing well. Uh, gearing up for the for the stretch run in the NHL season, the most meaningful of games. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't have anything else there. The, <laughs> like the, the, there, there's no there's no retort to that. It's like the, these games are meaningless and they suck. Um, yeah, uh, I mean anyways. they're meaningful if you're in a wild card race. The Leafs mm-hmm. aren't, and the first seed in the division went out of reach around December. So, yeah. Yeah, and actually, sorry, I, I'm going to immediately depart from like our normal podcast plan and move to like, <laughs> this is going to be a free roaming podcast uh, because fuck it, the Leafs aren't playing like they give a shit. So we're not potting like we give a shit either. <laughs> um, so Batman at one point today or this week was like, oh, you know, he did one of like the obvious lies that no one can call him out on where he's like, you know, the fans seem to like this. And it's like, no one actually does. Like yeah. the fans seem to love digital advertising. Which is just like, I mean, he said that before, and obviously it's untrue. Uh, the digital advertising is at best like a thing that fans are like, eh, whatever about. Yeah. But this week he was like, oh, the fans seem to really love the the this you know divisional playoff and wildcard system. And a, I don't think that's true. But b, like, I think the wildcard system has genuinely detracted from my enjoyment of the of the league over the last couple years. Not because the Leafs are getting jobbed by tough round one matchups, because they're not really. Like if I, it's been said a few times now, but if the East was a one eight, then the Leafs would probably be playing Tampa anyways. Mm-hmm. But the issue is that it removes so many stakes from most of the regular season. Like yeah. the Leafs have had their playoff matchup locked up for large parts of this season, and then also large parts of last season. Like we knew pretty early, the Leafs were going to play. Uh, Tampa last season even in seasons before that like playoffs playoff matchups get wrapped up really really quickly especially in the two three spot um for with this with this playoff system and this has happened a fair bit with the Leafs specifically so like I'm probably more impacted by it than the average NHL fan but the Leafs are far from the only team that have had like a baked in playoff um round one matchup in you know <laughs> over the last few years and it really does at least for me detract from the enjoyment of the regular season because it feels like you are just playing a waiting game yeah very much so um jeff Villette made this point well where he said if the sort of pointer wobbled back and forth between multiple options and landed on tampa in game 82 we wouldn't have a huge problem with that i mean i'd love to face someone easier but i recognize that's not how it's gonna go given where Boston's positioned and the overall competitiveness of the East. It's just, there's no suspense. There's no variety. Like, the Leafs have known since the late autumn that they were going to play the same team they played last year. That's not as exciting. Mm-hmm. And, and act- just even if that's season. the outcome, it has to at least be possible that's not going to be an outcome. For sure. And actually, I'm just looking at this now. Just this season, New Jersey and New York have been above 50% to play each other for, like, at least three to four weeks now. Yeah, like, they're almost certainly going to, unless one of them catches Carolina. So it's there's a little bit more drama than there is in the Atlantic, where it's a given. But, yeah, like, I, I think in the interest of, I guess, sustaining rivalries, um, the league has deprived itself of the ability to create other rivalries 
which occur when you run into a team in a playoff series and it's really hard fought. So anyway, I think that's stupid, but what do I know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, anyways, that's a minor annoyance. I think this it's more salient for us because mm-hmm. of the position the Leafs have been in the last few years and especially with how like the playoffs are clearly the most important thing for the Leafs at this point. Yeah. Um, and there's like really nothing to be gained from the regular season. But yeah, it's... It, in general, over the last few years, it's been harder to be a really involved in the NHL regular season and treated as sort of meaningful, which is also a problem because, like, you know, a lot of the time, you know, for, for 50% of the teams, they lose in round one of the playoffs, right? <laughs> so if the regular season isn't meaningful for a subset of teams and they lose in round one of the playoffs, it's like it becomes pretty disillusioning to, to follow the NHL or it just becomes less of an enjoyable process. Yeah. So, anyways, um, I mean that was a random aside. It's just something that <laughs> came to mind, sort of, sort of immediately. Um, what our original plan was to talk about on this podcast was kind of the trade deadline returns and our impressions for uh, the Leafs for the players that they acquired at the trade deadline. Obviously, the Leafs made a lot of moves. We cover them all in detail here, um, but we figured we'd go kind of player by player for the acquisitions and see, you know, what we thought about them, how they're doing, how they're fitting in, and you know, our, our thoughts on them and if they've changed. Right. And this is being done against a backdrop of the Leafs playing pretty badly Mm -hmm. since the trade deadline. There's not really a way around it. They've played sloppy in the win loss column. They've hung an okay, but it's been hard to be impressed with them statistically or visually in most of the games. That isn't necessarily the fault of the new guys though. Yes, I want in to fact, emphasize that. I'm going to make a distinction there a lot. Yeah. In fact, I would argue that it has almost entirely not been the fault of the new guys. Um, primarily just because the new guys are not the most important people on the roster. Yeah. Um, there are certain straws that stir this drink, and they aren't the players that we're talking about in this segment directly. Um, and also, you would expect in any case, there's going to be an adjustment period. There's going to be, you know, some feeling out as they get used to the system, to the teammates. That also bears on the 11-7 thing that we're going to talk about later in terms of lineup orientation. But we'll start by talking about Jake McCabe. And Jake McCabe looks about like what he was advertised to me as, to Mm -hmm. be honest. Um, He's made a couple of good clutch plays. He looked really good buttoning down a close win against the New Jersey Devils. And he played a long shift in the last minute there. Um... Numbers not great. No, in fact, they're pretty terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Numbers not great. Let's start with that. Um, Again, I don't want to get too carried away here. It's not like it's been a ton of games at this point in time. It's been nine um, since he's come to the Leafs. He's getting snowed in in expected goals and shots and all that sort of stuff. He's doing fine in real goals um, in a tiny sample. But... Yeah, uh, not what you'd love to see. Now, I don't think this is really his fault. The biggest thing about Jake McCabe is that he's a defensive defenseman. Mm-hmm. He looks good in his own zone. But, oh, well, you had a good point in this in the notes, so I'll let you make it. Yeah, well, he he looks good in his own zone. But, like, the fact that we visually are like, hey, Jake McCabe has been good, and I think that is the general consensus that most people in Leafs fandom um, and his numbers are so terrible, suggests that even when he's going well, he is not going to be the guy driving the bus. Mm-hmm. 
he needs the other players to like lift him up and and he he is useful and helpful and especially like as a failsafe in the defensive zone when you end up there because you're going to end up there some percentage of the time no matter how good a team you are it is very helpful to have Jake McCabe he's again as we've covered before he's not a stiff with the puck on his stick or anything either he's not outstanding with it um but he's he's perfectly acceptable there but I think this is evidence of the fact that like yeah he's a complimentary player which is fine that's what we expected him to be and he's really dependent on other players to lift him up he's not a defenseman who you put on the ice and you know kind of wills the team to strong results the way you know Victor Hedman would mm-hmm. and again like that's okay like we we have to keep in mind the expectations of Jake McCabe um but yeah, like that, it, it sort of, it is what it is. His physicality, I think, is definitely helpful. He, I think he had one of his best games, actually, against the Senators. He, he scored a goal, had a nice pass to Tavares, uh, like a long uh, breakout stretch pass to Tavares, which uh, turned into a goal as well. Or that might have been, was that the same play? I don't know, it might have been. Um, but I, I, anyway, in any case, I thought he was, he was fairly good against Ottawa. And I like his aggressiveness. I like that he is genuinely quite good at winning puck battles he doesn't do a lot obvious that to screw up right mm. i think that's that's the other kind of positive thing about him he, i think he's always going to like look good in our minds because the limitations he has are more limitations of things that he cannot do not things that he tries to do and fails to execute right and that makes him sort of the inverse of say rasmus and dean who were sometimes criticized as being over ambitious with the passes and plays that he could make um but he could make a quite high level of them a certain percentage of the time um again no real knocks on mccabe i just wonder how much are we going to have to rely on him and how is that going to go because i don't see a guy who's a jake muzzin i don't see a guy who's like a stealthy two three defensemen in disguise Mm-hmm. I see a guy who's like a pretty decent defensive defender. And I don't think he's being called on to be the best defensive defender on the team, because that's probably Brody. But in different permutations of the defense pairings, he might be to some extent asked to carry a pairing. He, he's been getting quite tough usage, especially in terms of quality of competition like you look at the the forwards he's been playing up against and you know part of this is because it's only been nine games on the leaf so it hasn't had time to like kind of naturally you're more likely to see like a kind of crazy outlying result but Mm -hmm. per hockey viz um the minutes of his uh, of the opposing forwards that he faces would rank highest among leafs defensemen meaning you know using opposing time on ice as a proxy for like how good the opposing forwards are um mccabe is getting arguably the toughest uh, forward competition. Now, he's right. also playing a lot with the Leafs' top players. I think his most played, uh, or most uh, common line, or forward teammate is Mitch Marner. But, right. you know, this he, he's, not, he's not being, you know, eased in. We still don't really know who his partner is going to be either. Partly that's the 11-7 yeah. thing, which leads to a lot of changes anyway. But... In his limited time on the Leafs, he's played significant-ish minutes for the sample with Brody, with Liljegren, and with Justin Hall. Yeah. Um, None of them statistically look like they went that well. No. (laughs) However, again, we're down to really tiny-ass samples here. I'm not holding that against him. I'm just saying there's nothing 
that's happened with him that's either made me think a he's bad or b he's going to really defy my expectations and found a really rock solid shutdown pairing that i feel great throwing against nikita kucherov um so yeah i i mean i guess that's damning with faint praise to some extent he looks like what he was supposed to be to me um any other jake mccabe thoughts no that's 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 pretty much it i mean uh he he has a very nice jawline i have to say i've been <laughs> really <laughs> impressed by that you could draw a ruler around that thing all right um nolachari uh we can't have nice things i suppose in this yeah. world um nolachari was very cool and good um in the games that he was playing with us he got Bumped in the head on what should have been the most obvious interference penalty in the history of the world by Jesse Pugliarby. What do I know? Um, the fear was that he would have a concussion. He didn't play in Ottawa last night. It sounds like he's not experiencing symptoms. The team is hopeful to get him back, and that would be good. Nolachari has been a kind of super fourth liner. Right. Clearly overqualified for the fourth line. Uh, and yes. It's a luxury to be able to play a guy like Achari there. Like the His... His lines have pretty much dominated, especially when he was played with Alex Kerfoot, another guy who's clearly too good to be a fourth liner. Um, yeah, it's it, they were kind of a pleasure to watch together. Yeah, Achari is great, you know, aggressive, physical, and effective. And he chipped in a couple of goals against the Oilers, which was awesome. Um, he doesn't look 31 years old to me, and I have to remind myself that he is when I think about how much I would want to resign him. But the way that he's been playing since coming to Toronto is uh, pretty endearing. Hard mm -hmm. not to like that guy. And if he goes on a fourth line with Kerfoot and basically anybody, uh, I think we can be pretty confident that's going to be an, an effective um, couple of forwards. It's also a fourth line that you're not like, I don't know, you're not ma hard matching them to, you know, to Kucherov, yeah. as you said. But like if they get caught out for a shift against Kucherov, I'm not like shitting my pants either. Yeah, if you believe that one of the most important things is not to have obvious weaknesses, especially on your fourth line, like it's not just a buffet laid out in front of the opposing forwards, Achari is the kind of guy you want because no one's having an easy day against Noel Achari, even if they're better than him. Um, so let's hope he's back in the lineup ASAP because we've liked what we've seen from him. Yeah, absolutely. He's been he's been really, really good. Um yeah, kind of immediately uh, a fan favorite for, for the way he plays, and it's understandable understandable why. I, last couple games he's played, he was being used a little bit more defensively in terms of um, shift starts and things like that. Mm -hmm. And as you would expect, correspondingly, like his numbers were a little bit worse. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Achari is not a transition dynamo by any stretch. He is like a kind of meat and potatoes, dump and chase, hit the body, separate the puck type of player. Yeah. Um, so he is not going to do amazingly well uh, in terms of his own numbers when put in the own in his own zone. Like he's he's just not going to be able to transition the puck and create chances at the other end. That's not his skill set. Um, mm -hmm. But he can be useful in that situation. And then he, I think, he is very useful as a, as a forechecker in the offensive zone as well. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we won't get carried away uh, with him, but certainly for the role he's in, he's perfect. Yeah, for a fourth liner, completely fine. Um, Sam Lafferty. He sure is fast. Yeah. There is no denying that. Um, we overplayed him a bit in the early absence of Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah, second line center Ryan O'Reilly was like not a not not amazing, but uh, <laughs> you know, Tavares out and O'Reilly out. 
there, there yeah. weren't a ton of other options. So I, you know, I don't really. Yeah, think I mean, and again, it. we did say this is like the the laboratory phase of the season where there's not a whole lot less to play for. So if you want to know how that's going to look, this was the time to find out. The, an- and now the answer is out. the answer is not amazing. <laughs> Who could have foreseen that? <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean. I think some people were like, "Oh, hey, the 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 La- I think in one of the games where they were playing together, Lafferty, um, Nylander, and was it Yarncroke, um, he scored a goal, and it was off mm. like a zone entry by Lafferty, pass to Nylander, a uh, great pass to Yarncroke with a tap in, and in a sense, like, okay, that's the things that they do best. Lafferty do- is a zone entry threat because of the speed. Nylander is a very complete offensive player, but his passing is obviously a standout skill, and Yarncroke has a noose for finding soft areas of the ice and finishing." But then, like the numbers for that line looked horrible, and I think on a shift to shift basis, it was not it was not incredibly promising, just because they're not good enough for like to be like an actual second line. Yeah, right. and like you know, Nylander is like uh, low end first liner might be underselling it, mm-hmm. but he's in that bracket. Lafferty is a fourth liner. Yarncroke is the kind of guy who can fit on a top six. But everyone on the line should be clearly better than Yeah, he, I, I agree. Like, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Yarncroak has to be the third best guy on a top six line. Yeah. Right? And if so, you can have some fun, as we found out in Ottawa last night. Now, I don't want to rain on Lafferty too hard. And he did have um, a strong game against Carolina. Um, I think, you know, he's a fourth line player. And that's the important thing to remember. I guess, again, you know... People prefer what he brings to Pierre Engvall because Lafferty is a little bit more abrasive. Um, And that's okay. It's just, if we're relying on Sam Lafferty to play up the lineup, I don't feel good about that. Like, Achari can do it kind of in a pinch. Um, You still shouldn't have him doing that when you're healthy. Lafferty, I'm like, this guy should stay on the fourth line. Yeah. That is my preference. I really don't even want him on the third line when everyone is healthy. Yeah, um, I, I just don't think he has the variety. He has that blazing speed, and and it's good. But, uh, you know, I think he's limited. And that, that doesn't mean that he's not a good player. But he doesn't have the, the, the offensive variety to really be played up. Yeah, and I mean, I think Lafferty's ideal role is a fourth-line center. Um, hmm. And what I think his—and th- I don't know, I think that's what his role will be next year, I hope— um, yeah. But, you know, an under-discussed part of some of the Leafs' struggles has been that David Kampf has really been hurting at times. Like, in terms of, he's just not really been able to perform in his role the way we would want him to. You know, I'm not expecting a 50% Corsi from him. He gets buried in zone starts. He, he is not an offensively talented player by any stretch. Um, but he's getting murdered right now. Uh, and... That's been a bit of a problem for for the team. Yeah, I mean, he's still, like, he's clustering around 50 in XG. He's a bit under it. Um, But, you know, he's within shouting distance of it. And he's about 48 in actual goals. Mm -hmm. Wait, sorry, across the whole season or recently? Uh, This is full season. Okay, interesting. So, HockeyViz has him at, like, 2.31 expected goals for, 2.59 expected goals against for 60. Um, okay. That that that's all nice, which is like, I mean, that's not terrible, I suppose. It's not it's not like getting absolutely caved in, um, for mm-hmm. a fourth liner, but it's certainly not great. 
and he does get you know a fair number of minutes he's often like our sixth or seventh most played forward that does begin to feel like a bit of an issue like the, the big thing about david Kampf is he's supposed to be kind of a fast forward button player where even if the ratio isn't great not much is going on for either team and that's okay so you have sort of a a slowdown period, and then your offensive players can get out and start doing damage again. And that's a way to make an economical bottom six because it's hard to hang big differentials on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have repeated nights where Kampf is getting absolutely shelled, it's understandable given his role, but it is a big problem with what we're asking him to do. And I think it might also be an issue of, like, lacking Pierre Engvall. His numbers with and without <laughs> Engvall this year have been quite stark. Uh, so, yeah, and like Camp and Aston Reese together have, have really not been great. Again, Aston mm. Reese is a very limited player uh, with a lot of the same limitations as Camp. A lot of that was what we saw at the start of the year with the Aston Reese Camp Abe Kubel line, which, you know, as we covered in various pods, just didn't really work. Um yeah, Eng- Engvall and Kampf have been good together, but of course we don't have Engvall anymore. Um, and you sort of wonder, you know, what, what, like we, 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 can't, we can't afford to lose Kampf's minutes that badly, especially if the top guys aren't firing and they haven't been over the past, you know, week or two weeks. So right. that, that's been a bit of a problem for the team. Yeah. Now, to some extent, like if the top guys aren't firing come playoff time, this is over. Yeah, we're so. screwed regardless. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we'll see. Um, anyway, Lafferty is interesting. You'd hope that he could provide some of the transition that Engvall did. He's got the speed. I'm not sure he's the same caliber of transition player. I just don't think I, I see it to quite the same extent. Yeah, I think Engvall had a little bit more in terms of puck. So, I mean, i got to be honest. I haven't seen anything that's convinced me that Lafferty is better than Engvall. No. Uh, now that said, he's cheaper than Engvall, and he signed for another year, right? Like, yeah. In, in... So if they are the same, Lafferty wins on that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think Lafferty's a little bit worse. Um, people don't like talking about this. Like, it's like, why would you talk about Engvall now? It's like, well, I don't know. We're talking about what the team is doing. It's just like <laughs> it seems natural to me to discuss whether the changes that they've made are good. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I. Anyway, I, I don't want to rain on Lafferty too hard. I just want to say, like, I think that he's fine in a given role and he shouldn't go above it. Um, <laughs> on a related note, Luke Shen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Luke Shen has his moments, for sure. He bailed out Morgan Riley on a two-on-one last night, and I was immediately like, that is the kind of play that is going to stick with Sheldon Keefe. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll make him think, you know what, he needs that steady partner. And you know what? Again, like a lot of these guys, numbers have not been terrific for Mr. Shen, but it's not been a big sample. It's been an even smaller sample than uh, the other new players mm-hmm. because he's um, he and his wife have been welcoming a new child, so he's been away. Um, yeah, I think he's a fine sixth defenseman. He's physical. He can uh, he knows what he can get away with in the defensive zone. Mm-hmm. Um, you were mentioning a play last night that spoke to that. Yeah, so this was a play with around 13 minutes to go in the third period. And basically, I forget the exact uh, context behind it, but uh, the Sens had 
essentially a loose puck going kind of east to west in the offensive zone, in their offensive zone, so the Leafs' defensive zone, from the Leafs' blue line to, like, the opposite goal line. I think it was, like, a kind of weird aborted dump-in. And Shen was the last Leafs defender back, and he had a four-checker bearing down on him. So Shen took, like, three strides and kind of immediately realized, this guy is just a lot faster than me, and he is going to get around me if I play this normally. So he started, like, slowing himself up and, like, playing kind of play, like, trying basically interference without interfering right and it was kind of an impressive bit of professional defending like that's something you actually you get with experience you know how to position yourself you know what the refs will call and what the refs won't call and he made that race closer than it should have been by foot speed now he still lost it mm-hmm. the guy eventually got around him got to the puck first the sense started a cycle and got a, i think a chance on it they didn't score on it but they, they got a couple chances and that's one of the things where it's like, yeah, well, that's his limitation. He is not fast at all. He, was, he wasn't he was considered fast when he was drafted. No. As far as I remember. And that was in an era before modern standards of speed for the NHL, mm-hmm. I would say. Like, it wasn't as fast as it has since become. And there was still a lot of uh, mental hangover from the clutch and grab era. So his speed was considered less of an issue than it would be now. And he was still considered not very fast. Yes. So those are the types of things that happen with Shen. He, he has a lot of noose and a lot of like know-how, especially in his own zone. But it, again, there's just plays that he can't make. Mm-hmm. And you lose out because of that a little bit, right? Like it, we, we've, we've talked about this over the years with many defensemen. Jake Gardner was a great example of, you know, the, the difference between defenders who seem perhaps like better or or more solid than they are because they never make mistakes of execution but they also never really do things that are extraordinary that help your team push the puck forwards right shen is an example of that i think mccabe is a higher skill version of that in a lot of ways right someone who executes a defensive game plan really really well but doesn't move the puck well enough to have truly outstanding impacts on their team. Now, McCabe is better than Shen, of course, mm. but yeah, Sh- Shen just sort of struggles with a lot of the things that Sandine and Lillian do really, really well at. And he's good at a lot of the things that they do poorly, but I tend to think that coaches overrate the things that Shen does well and underrate the things that, say, Lillian and Sandine do well. Right, and it can be difficult to... To know how much to weight that the ability yeah to- it's not it's not easy either. and we should also note that like Rasmus Sandin in Washington has been playing a lot recently and he has like a very very impressive point totals and stuff but his PDO is or was at least very incredibly high and in terms of his on ice play he hasn't actually been that amazing there yeah I you know I think well I mean I've said enough about Rasmus Sandin I don't need to dip into that content well again I do think that um a knowledge of how to productively break the rules is uh, certainly significant. Um, you know, things like knowing exactly how much interference you can usually get away with are critical to playing in the playoffs, I would say. Um, just because I think that that's kind of defensive standard. Like the Carolina Hurricanes do all sorts of stuff en route to being oh, a yeah, very the, good the, the Hurricanes. Team. The Hurricanes exist on the theory of, like, they are not going to call us every time. Mm-hmm. And they do have a very bad penalty differential because they are really clutchy and grabby. Yeah. And the refs call them out on it at least a little bit. But 
not as much as I think they should, and not as much as you know. It, it doing so allows the the Hurricanes to get away with a lot and really like impede the team's offense. Yeah, and you know it's it's less pronounced this year than it was in previous years. Previous years it was glaring because they would be way down in penalty differential, but they would also be a top team in expected goals against. And and you know some of that is legitimate defensive talent. They've got Jacob Slavin, who's terrific um, defensively. But yeah, they um, they play aggressively, and I think it's possible the Leafs were, among other things, trying to get players who knew how to break the rules in a way that they could get away with. Um, right, and th- th- this is something where it's like, okay, a playoff player versus quote-unquote not a playoff player. Right. Um, now, <laughs> even with all of this, as we covered last time, Shen was not exactly you know, played a lot by the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah, that mythology is... playoff runs. I think that's one of the more annoying things, is the idea that he was somehow integral to, like, their cup runs when he was, like, literally a seventh defenseman for them. It's fine. Not a knock on him. Good for him. Those rings are forever. But, like, let's not pretend that he and Hedman were, like, the two guys bringing down the door. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I think that I haven't changed too many of my opinions... On the uh, the acquisitions, the biggest one is that I did not think a ton about Nolachari before we got him, and I've been mildly pleased with them. The rest of them have been about what I thought they would be. Yeah, I think I think that I think that's fair. Um, I was I was quite happy with Achari, so I'm I'm happy to take a small victory lap, um, on that. But yeah, the other I mean McCabe I think has been as expected. Lafferty. As expected, not my favorite. He is very fast, and that seems to be about it. And Shen, again, com- exactly as expected. Very good at some things, very bad at others. Uh, and, you know, very limited in, in the way that he is probably a solid sixth uh, defenseman, and I really wouldn't want to play him above that. Now, we talk about him playing with Riley. I, I mentioned this last time. He he does play with Riley a fair bit, but like they always find extra shifts for Riley with other line mates and other 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 um, defense pairings. Mm-hmm. So I'm not too worried about that particular duo like being overplayed. I think Shen will play six defenseman minutes. It just might be in a sort of unconventional way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I'm more worried, which is like, okay, well, there's going to be times where Shen is just unable to make the play that we want him to either with his feet or his hands, and we end up playing defense for a while. And, I mean, that, that was borne out yesterday in that example that I brought up from Ottawa. Not that he had a bad game overall, but just, like, those sorts of plays happen with Shen. Yeah, I mean, if you want my um, my fear with Shen, it's this. We'll play him with Riley. He'll play a very conservative, quiet game. He will be the one who's getting back um, when Riley pinches and gets caught for a two-on-one, which is going to happen. And there will be a number of goals against... That won't be really Shen's fault so Hmm. much as the play will have been in his end more than it otherwise would have been. And sooner or later, the law of averages goes against you. There were like a couple of fluky goals last night that the Sens got and they were in themselves fluky, but it's the same thing. If you get barraged for an extended period of time in hockey, sooner or later, there's going to be a... 1 in 25 or 1 in 50 bounce that goes against you. And you say, well, that was kind of fluky. And it was. But when you gave up 50 shots, you increased the likelihood that something fluky was going to go against you. I feel like that's the risk with overplaying Luke Shen. 
that is a great way to put it. And that, that's really what I was trying to get at with the comparison between defenders who execute well but don't bring anything special to like have really help their team to you know they're at risk of doing things like that Mm. of not being particularly at fault for goals but being on the ice for them because you know the team would have otherwise been in a better situation i think that uh, with with someone more dynamic there so uh, that uh, you you express that really really well i wanted to emphasize that yeah now i think that that's one of the biggest things um about these divides in defense evaluation, which is that you have these defensemen who push the play and when it goes against them, it's obvious. Um, But it's hard to distinguish between that and the overall fact that sometimes they're just not in the defensive zone to have something go against them. And that only really shows in the long-term goal and chance against rates at which they, they look good. So anyway, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, Worth note. I mean, so the, we're spending a lot of time on on Shen here, probably more than it deserves. Uh, but just in the interest of being like fair, I talk a lot about Shen and uh, how you know I'm sort of disappointed the Leafs aren't tr- weren't trusting their younger defensemen with these roles. I have to say, Timothy Liljegren has not done me any favors. It's been a rough couple of weeks for Timmy. Yeah, uh, he he's he's struggled a bit. He still does make good plays that, for example, Shen will not or cannot make. And in fact, that very other very few other defensemen on the Leafs can can make or will try to do. Especially in terms of you know the quick passes outside the zone, the the long lead stretch passes to bypass a forecheck, um, but you know Liljegren has been noticeably lightweight at times recently. Um, the pairing with McCabe sounds very good in principle. I would like to see more of it. It has not worked out tremendously at this point. Um, so, yeah, I, I just wanted to point that out there. I, I am not blind to, Tim- to Timothy Lilligren's flaws. Yeah. Do we want to do the 11-7 segment now, just because this seems to flow? Yeah, I think okay. so. Okay, so uh, for periods since the deadline, the Leafs have experimented with the 11-7 setup where they play 11 forwards and 7 defensemen. They didn't do it last night. They went back to a 12-6. But it's been happening a lot. Obviously, a 12-6 is by far the more common Um, way to arrange your lineup Um, before we get into this I want to say I'm indebted to Anthony Petrelli at Maple Leafs Hot Stove who wrote a really good article um, laying it on this I agree with most of it but we thought this was worth discussing just for a bit Um, as a preliminary again we are in the experiment stage of the season so even if you don't think 11-7 is a good idea now is the time to find out and to try things. So I don't have a problem with Sheldon Keefe doing it now. We're just looking at this from the perspective of, is this a good idea to do in a game that you really do care about? Mm-hmm. It's also worth noting that I believe we hadn't experimented with it at all until O'Reilly went down. Uh, yeah, I don't recall it being more than a couple of games earlier in the season. I do think it happened once or twice. Oh, no, actually, it did, it, it did happen... Actually, I, I, I should take that back immediately because in the game that O'Reilly went down, we had we were down to 10 forwards. So we tried it in that particular game. We might have tried it a few games before. So ignore my statement. That was just completely wrong. <laughs> it's all good. It's a long season. So yeah. Um, so the advantages of 11-7 are, one, if you feel like you're deep on defense, um, you get to play more of those defensemen. You play them for less time. So presumably they're less taxed. Um, you get some opportunities to play your forwards, those extra shifts. Mm -hmm. Um, Without benching someone. Yeah, without having to bench someone. 
you're kind of in a natural state of flux because with 11 forwards, obviously you're still playing three forwards on a line most of the time. So you'll be giving those extra shifts to Mitch Marner, to Austin Matthews, to William Nylander. Um, and that can be cool and good and fun. Uh, the problem I have with it, hockey is by far... Um, well, I shouldn't say by far. That implies the knowledge of other sports I don't have. It's really intuitive. Hockey does not give you time to think. It's an instinct-based game, and you learn so deeply in your bones where your line mates are supposed to be in the course of learning a system so that you can make passes to them um, based on your understanding of how the game is supposed to materialize. It has to go really, really quick. When you break up lines and you constantly shift them, or when you break up pairings and constantly try new partners, you are increasing the chance that there's going to be a disconnect where two players aren't going to understand where they're supposed to be in relation to each other, and they're going to defy each other's expectations. When that happens, you get broken plays. And there are a certain number of broken plays inevitably, and you need players who try stuff. But I think... 11-7 doesn't just increase the unpredictability because we haven't done it for very long yet. Inherently, it means that there's more unpredictability because you're spending more time with unfamiliar players. Yeah, and I mean, the flip side to like defying a teammate's expectations uh, on offense is defying their expectations on defense. On offense, it leads to, as you said, broken plays. On defense, it leads to breakdowns. Mm. And for a team that sometimes struggles with defensive execution generally that's not something i really want to invite more of mm -hmm. um we've seen it already i think the yarn i think this is an example that petrelli puts in his article which again i agree with you it was very good um it was a yarn croak lafferty nylander um trio obviously they hadn't played together very much and yarn croak and lafferty got their wires crossed both thought the other was going to go out to the point to defend a point shot it let the person on the point just like walk in with a lot more space than they otherwise would have had mm -hmm. And so we can't say for sure that that happened because of 11-7, but, you know, it's it's at least plausible to me that when, when you know, the, the, the lines of communication aren't as strong, when it's not as ingrained as to what everyone is doing, when your role is constantly shifting, um, that those sorts of things may happen more often. We don't know that to be true, but I think it, it makes some sense intuitively. It also caused a bench minor for the Leafs where... Um, I think Mitch Marner thought the his entire line was going, but it was like a weird, you know, aborted shift or something like that and created a too many men penalty. Now, that happened a lot with 12-6 anyways, especially with the Leafs. We, we seem to be pretty bad with bench miners. Yeah, um, and it's just kind of hard to understand sometimes how many we seem to yeah. get. It's actually been... Um, I think it's been better this year than it was in the last couple when I recall it being... At least it feels better. Yeah, I know, year. and uh, I, I haven't uh, checked the actual counts. Um, but it is worth noting, it does not take much of a breakdown to ruin you in hockey. Um, last year, uh, in the course of a mailbag episode, we were asked about our favorite goals of the season, and I named one of, uh, Austin Matthews, um, where the Leafs scored in the dying seconds of a period against Carolina, who, as I mentioned, good defensive team. Um, the whole Leafs set play in that circumstance was basically to buy Austin Matthews one second where Vincent Trocek wasn't covering him, and that's all it took. Trocek read the play and figured out what was wrong with it almost instantly. 
and moved to address it. The puck was just coming off Matthew's stick as he arrived. That's all it takes. And so when you go with 11-7 with a higher degree of unpredictability, I do begin thinking you don't have to open that big a margin before it's a problem. Now, I don't want to overstate this. Obviously, even in the course of 12-6, there are partial line changes. There are switches. There are things that go weird. Um, and that's natural to hockey to a certain extent. I'm just saying, when I worry about 11-7, that's what I think about happening. Maybe to some extent, mm -hmm. it's just 11-7 feels messy and 12-6 feels neat. Yeah. But that's where I'm coming from. I it is worth mentioning an advantage of 11-7. We alluded to it before, like being able to roll your star forwards more. You could also more easily like optimize your lines and pairings for the situation at hand mm. without disrupting people's regular flow. Yeah. Right? Because you're already in a state of flux and like it, it's not like structure, 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 weird line. Yeah. Right? It, it's... You, you, you can move things around. You can play it by ear. You can try new things. You can try and exploit particular patterns that you see. It's more flexible in some ways because it doesn't invite the kind of rigid structure of four lines of three, three pairs of three, yeah, which tend to stick together. Um, Keith seems to like experimenting generally, and I think the Leafs are relatively aggressive in terms of, certainly more so now than they were under Babcock, of deploying lines um, situationally. Right, Keith will very often uh, load up a line for an offensive zone shift after a timeout. He'll very often, just like after a random icing with no particular reason or no particular like you know impetus, just say, "Okay, let's let's put Tavares and Matthews together for a shift." Mm -hmm. Right, like he'll he'll do things like that. I think eleven seven kind of emboldens him to do those sorts of things and to feel the flow of a game. It does seem to be a lot more to manage as a coach, um, but. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 what he gets paid for, I suppose. Yeah, and, you know, if he's comfortable with it, that's down to him. He's going to own the results, rain or shine. Um, yeah, again, I don't have a huge problem with it as an experiment, but I don't think it's what I'd want to see in the playoffs. Also... Yeah, I agree. Like, yeah, I mean, it ha hasn't been helped by the fact that we just haven't been good and it's happened to coincide with 11-7. I don't think it's because of 11-7, hmm. but yeah. Yeah, although I like... The other thing is that, like, who are you playing because of the 11-7? Um, and sometimes it's been Eric Gustafson and I gotta mm -hmm. tell you, I was skeptical about Eric Gustafson when we got it. And, uh, again, I'm right in my analysis. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I have seen nothing to you change know, my mind. He, he, he had a good game against, um, uh, Carolina. Yeah. I, I'll, I'm going to be honest. I, I view him with something of a jaundiced eye because every time he makes a mistake, I'm like classic Eric Gustafson. But, <laughs> but I, I do think it's like, I don't want a power I think, I, I think Gustafson is fine. I, I, I'm, I am not... Fuhlman stands alone in his Eric Gustafson slander. Wow. Uh, I did not expect a betrayal at this stage of proceedings. No, no, I get it. And it, like, it's more he's like the type of player I don't trust. Well, I, I think there's some element of, like, of it which is like, if we were just going to get Eric Gustafson, like, we could have just kept Sandine and I'd rather have that than the 31st or 32nd overall pick. Yeah, and, and again, right? it's like, I think there's some residual of that, uh, some residual element of For that. sure. And it, then it's like, even if I look at the roster, I count defensemen who I want to play more than Eric Gustafson, I get to seven instantly. Um, mm -hmm. I can probably get to eight or nine. I just... Really? So you, you'd rather have, like, Bogosian over, or Timmins over Gustafson? I would rather play Timmins. Interesting. I, I I mean, I don't love Gustafson, I, 
but I think he's he's perfectly acceptable. I mean, he's I just fine. think it's a weird thing that we have nine of these. Yeah, guys. that's <laughs> maybe that's really what I'm objecting to. Yeah, I mean, and in Timmons' case, I'm going off younger, going to be here longer, mm-hmm. right shot. Like, might as well just develop. Exactly, and so that's what I'm thinking. Like, all else being equal, let's play Connor Timmons. Um, you can say, look, Eric Gustafson has played more. He's a veteran NHL defenseman. And we mentioned this before, but Gustafson has genuinely quite good numbers this year. And actually, like, pretty good numbers throughout his career. He, he's always been a guy that, like, has looked better by stats than... Uh, uh, he's looked better by stats than by coaches' trust. Yes. Uh, or by the eye test, generally, I guess, uh, is a better way to phrase that. Yeah. Um, and, and he has been, like, sheltered and used in a way that, like, makes you have some sort of distrust over things like RIPM and Iceland Threat. Like, are they really evaluating him perfectly? I tend to think that, like... Coaches make mistakes, but I and and they make correlated mistakes as well, right? Like they they make the same types of mistakes often. But I tend to believe that they generally know hockey relatively well. Yeah. Um. So if like a guy doesn't get run under like many coaches, at some point I'm like, okay, they're probably just seeing something I'm not, or they're grossly overvaluing you know, like some ability, which is also possible. But I think like, you know, it's worth considering like how how dumb do coaches have to be in order for your take about a player to be valid as like a, a, a way to like assess the likelihood of that take i also think that it's more pronounced for a guy who's been through unrestricted free agency a couple of times where it's like okay mm-hmm. maybe in one organization you were not getting a fair shake but if the league and its pro scouts and its general managers who are presumably operating in some contact with coaches went through this process and you know you found a situation where, as we've mentioned before, by definition, they liked you more than the market did because they signed you. Um, and you were still used in this way. I start to find myself thinking, okay, it's probably reflective of real flaws that you have. Yeah, and I mean, of course, there are players that slip through the cracks, sure. right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just something to keep in mind. Like, not not everyone who who we think slips through the cracks that actually would perform as well in, uh, in, in, in a greater role. And there is still like value to be had in free agents, but you know, doesn't mean that, as we said, like that every single guy who, yeah. who has these great stats and is underpaid by coaches is actually really, really, really good. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, but like, I mean, we, we, we mentioned like Sonny Milano this year, like, like why, why was he not signed? And then he performed pretty well. Like that, that was clearly something that where teams seem to undervalue him, but you know, there, there's lots of guys who who do that and then don't end up being anything special. Like, I think Rudolf Bowser's, who I said, oh, well, he's going to be a good signing because teams are undervaluing him, has been, like, pretty mediocre this year. Yeah. It's tricky, again, with uh, those third and fourth line guys. Um, it's so much of it is fine margins. Anyway, with regard to 11-7 on the Leafs, it's fine through this experimental stage. It's not what I want to see game one. Um I kind of want to see the good players game one, I guess, more. Uh, but you could say, look, I, I guess that the argument would be, okay, you guys want Timothy Liljegren in the playoff lineup, right? Um, that may not happen in a 12-6 arrangement the way the wind seems to be blowing. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm leery of it in general, but that's basically what I don't like about it is that constant shifting and unpredictability mm-hmm. um we were going to talk about the william nylander decision we're living in the future a little bit but 
you know, there's not a whole lot else to do as we count down towards the end of this. Yeah, game. I mean, I don't think we have to like spend forever on this, but I think it's worth discussing and, and bringing up as a as something to keep in mind for for this off season. Yeah. So if the Leafs lose in round one, or I would say if they make round two and it's embarrassing, I suspect that the minimum response that they make is to trade William Nylander. If they give up on this core, and by that I mean either Kyle Dubas or his successor, um, Nylander feels like the most movable part. He's He's the only movable part. Really, yeah. Uh, Austin Matthews is a franchise player. The Leafs are going to offer him Texas and a dollar sign. Um, Mitch Marner has an additional year and is also, um, I think, probably perceived as more integral to the team. Uh, John Tavares... We've talked before about how they're not going to trade him. He has a full no move, but he also has two years at 11. And even if they asked him, I think it would be difficult to move that much money. He wouldn't be a, he wouldn't be a positive asset. No, probably not. Whereas he's still a good player. So having him on the Leafs is probably preferable to trying to unload him at a loss. You know, he's still better than a point of game player. Um so that kind of leaves William Nylander, and we've been a very pro Nylander pod, I would say, throughout really the entire run of this podcast, because we started in 2017, and he was already here. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're coming up on a decision of, do you extend him, or would you trade him this offseason to try and get the value um, that's left in the hopes of restructuring the team? So if the Leafs lose round one, or round two is a total debacle... Uh, I assume what they trade him for is to address what they perceive went wrong that time. You know, and if it's scoring depth, maybe they trade him for multiple players who are cheaper. If they think that they need a big physical defenseman in the Chris Pronger mode, uh, well, you have to find one first. But conceivably, that could be the kind of thing. Like what Colden Pareko was perceived as a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um Alternatively, maybe the goaltending proves to be an issue. You know, if the Leafs totally flame out in that regard, then maybe Kyle Dubas's plan of going cheap and platooning the goaltending position is not going to hold up. But it makes it hard to perceive what the return would be. Um, Timo Meyer is probably a somewhat better player uh, and was sort of in this one plus one situation. So I don't think that you get anything on a par with Timo Meyer, but you should be looking at multiple assets for sure. It should be close, should be I close. think. Yeah. Um, especially because, I mean, you know, like, if he's perceived we, to be open to an extension. Yeah, I mean, with Meyer, it is like the one plus one, but it's also like almost quasi free agency, mm-hmm. right? It's it's or quasi unrestricted free agency. I mean, the Devils can um, do it if they want to. They can mm-hmm. pay him as like the 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 yeah. But um, yeah, so. I think that that would kind of give us a guideline there. It's tricky because if they trade Nylander, but they extend Matthews, this team is still trying to contend next season. Right. So it has to be sort of a hockey trade or a three-teamer where you trade Nylander for future assets and then flip those future assets, or you just like willingly sort of take a step back, which would be weird. Yeah, which you don't do. And the Leafs are also like, they have burnt the farm (laughs) in terms of draft picks. They still have that Boston Bruins late first for this year. 
which I would not be shocked if they traded the draft um, at all. I, I'd kind of be shocked if they don't. I'd be, I'd be really surprised if they just stand pat and take a guy. Yeah, I was like surprised that they didn't trade it by the deadline. I'd be real surprised if they didn't at least trade down because we know Kyle Dubas loves doing that. Um, now that said, he took uh, Rasmus Sandin in about that spot, granted after trading down once, but still. So you never know. Um, but that would be kind of what we're looking at. And it's painful to think about because Nylander is a really good player and we, we really like him. I don't love the idea of trading him rain or shine. Like I'm, I've been saying what I think the Leafs will do, but if it were up to me, I'd be looking at extending him almost regardless. Um, unless Matthew says, nope, goodbye. I am leaving no matter what F you. Um, then maybe you have to start asking some questions about the overall direction. Mm -hmm. Um, But then if we do want to extend him, what does he cost? Is sort of the next thing. And the obvious comparable that I looked at was Dylan Larkin. Um, Larkin is signing an extension that starts this summer, whereas Nylanders would start the following summer. So you have to account for a little bit of inflation there. But he took eight years at 8.7 million. Uh, Larkin probably has a better reputation as a central guy than Nylander. You know, Larkin is the first line center for the Detroit Red Wings. Nylander is usually not played at center. He's sort of a, a first line right wing. Um, but on the other hand, after a bit of inflation and if he's willing to go to market, I could see Nylander getting eight years or sorry, seven years at 9 million for sure. I, I agree. I think that's, I think he'll be looking for something above that range and i think he'll probably settle in in that range mm-hmm. um and I, I i have mixed feelings about giving him that deal i mean look neander is a great player it's hard to acquire players like him in free agency um and especially over the last couple of years like the shooting ability that we always thought was there has been realized you know for the longest time in the early parts of his career we're like this guy has a great shot why doesn't it go in more mm-hmm. and whether he's changed something or 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 not it is going in more and that makes him an intensely valuable player. He's maybe the most complete offensive player on the Leafs. Mm-hmm. Right? Which isn't to say he's the best offensive player, but I think he's the most well-rounded. There isn't an offensive skill where Nylander is not in like the 75th percentile in the NHL. Yeah. He's already set a career high in goals. And if he gets two points in the course of the next 13 games, he'll have a career high in points too. Mm-hmm. The thing is, this year his defense has really slipped. And, and and last year, um, last year his play driving was good, but not as amazing as it used to be, uh, or as it as it was in. I didn't say it used to be as if like he's a thirty seven year old or whatever. <laughs> it wasn't as good as like his absolute best years. Mm. Uh, it was still it was still solid, um, although he and Tavares struggled to have their on ice goals match up to their expected goals. The thing I worry about is like. If Nylander's defense, I guess I'm, I would need to think or need to study how much we think Nylander's defense this year is like a one-year aberration and he's not this bad defensively. Because mm. he's been really, really bad defensively this year. Both he and Matthews have really taken step back, steps back there, both together and independent of each other, uh, at least by the numbers. So I, I would want to know what's causing that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to my eye test, he doesn't look any worse. No, that's the thing. Um, like he, he looks like the same Nylander to me. Yeah, and... But the results are significantly worse, and I, I don't totally understand why. Yeah, and that's a, a tricky thing to contemplate. 
Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at extending Nylander, okay, first of all, he's going to turn 27 this May. This extension, when you sign it, would start when he's 28 years old. Right, so it's like 28 to 35, basically. Yeah. If it's an eight-year. You, you can anticipate he is going to decline probably significantly over the course of that contract. That's just how it goes. Um, Tavares was in the same boat when we signed him. The Leafs are pretty present-oriented, so if they're thinking, yeah, this is still our window in the next three or four or five years, you can absolutely sign that contract and say, like, look, you know, we'll worry about the, the last years when they arrive. Um, yeah, I... The difficulty of replacing a player of Nylander's caliber when you're in the position the Leafs are in um, leans me towards saying I would pay him close to full freight on the extension. You hope you can maybe get it a little bit cheaper because he's been here his whole career. By all accounts, he likes it. He has a remarkably good temperament for living in Toronto because he genuinely does not seem to give a shit what the media says about him. Um, but there is a point where you say, okay, is Nylander one of the two best players on this team? Right now, I think the answer is no. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that has been the case now for a couple years. Um, and how much can you afford to pay to that, that guy? And I think that that is a question. You would certainly be leaning further into the uh, the top-heavy model because the, the cap is not going up at a high rate yet. Mm -hmm. This season, it's still projected to be $1 million. Maybe by next year, we start getting back into those four-plus million increases that we've heard so much about, although the TV deal that was supposed to drive those is now looking a little wobbly in some cases. Um, that's getting into the Bally Sports stuff that I'd have to research to do a segment on. But, yeah, I, I, I want to keep him, I guess I would say, and, and I can see the downsides and all, but I think he's just too good. It's it's a bit of like a rock and a hard place situation, and again, it underscores how much it sucks that the Leafs have had zero playoff success in like these guys' early primes, mm -hmm. right? Because like now we're getting to the point where like their next contracts are going to con in include their decline phase. Yeah. And yeah, so you just have to be comfortable with that. You have to if you sign those contracts, you have to say, okay, well, these guys are not going to be worth this contract at the end of it. We need to make hay while the sun is shining in the first few years and it's hard to feel totally confident about that when we have made zero hay yeah at this point well if you look at all the stuff we said about the john devaris contract we said like look you're signing this planning to capitalize in the first half of the contract well we're in year five now and it didn't happen mm -hmm. and some of that was bad play some of that was bad luck some of that was you know say what you will about the montreal series and i've complained about it a lot if john devaris doesn't get need in the head 10 minutes in the Leafs win that series mm -hmm. like I don't even think that's a question so yeah I, I mean some of it is just to say that's the way the cookie crumbles but yeah it's it would also be locking in to this to this version of the team and you have to be content that this this is something you can contend with um and, and I don't know I will say that whole game with Ottawa last night Ottawa outplayed them and, like, pretty seriously. And Ottawa has some good players. Like, Tim Stutzla is going to be, like, at least a fringe star. Pro probably more. Um, Kachuk is very effective as a power forward. And yet I was still, like, I don't think anyone on the Sens will ever be as good as Mitch Marner is right now. 
Yeah. That's just where I got. And so I'm thinking, warts and all, this is a hell of a core of players. And I haven't maybe always appreciated it as much as I should have in light of things, but just sometimes it's good to remember how good these guys are. <laughs> um, we were going to talk about how good two of these guys are in relation to each other. Mm-hmm. Has the gap between Matthews and Marner narrowed? Um, Matthews, you know, was obviously consensus the best player on the team last season, and I think generally is still considered to be. He won the Hart Trophy last season for best player in the NHL for that year. Um, This year, Matthews has taken a bit of a step back. A lot of it impacted by a wrist injury. Um, Whereas Marner has had moments where he's looked absolutely unbelievable. The injury is... Yeah, it's... It makes sense retroactively with what we've seen. I don't know how much it's truly affected him. I guess none of us can really know that. Um, Matthews, for a lot of this year, has been quite good offensively and quite poor defensively. And the biggest difference between Matthews this year and Matthews last year is that this year's Matthews has been an average shooter, which he has never been at any point in his career. Mm. Like, pucks just aren't going in. And... There's eye testy stuff about that, about how he his shot types have changed, how he used his wrist shot less, perhaps because of an injury, um, how he's bobbling the puck more. And I think those are true. Like, I've thought the same things, but it's hard to know how much of that is things I think because I'm not seeing Matthews sling the puck into the net as often as he usually does. Right. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, the core of it is that Austin Matthews is only a top five player in the world. When he is an elite shooter. Right. Right. And that was a huge part of everything he brought to the table. You know, in the last year, he was a plus 11 shooter as per hockey viz. Year before, he was plus nine. For that, he was plus 11. This year, he's plus two. Now, he can still be a really, really good player. Like, no doubt about it, first line center kind of player. But he's not nipping at McDavid's heels. Um, mm-hmm. When he's like this, he's like in the conversation with a bunch of other guys who are really good. But what we saw last season, and I think it's going to get kind of obscured because McDavid has gone supernova this year while Matthews took a step back. It was entirely reasonable to say that they were in the same conversation last year. And now that's not the case. Like they're just not Mm -hmm. in the same discussion now. Um and with Matthew's wrist injury, we don't know how much of that is temporary and hopefully recoverable um, or whether some of it is going to be hard to get back to. You know, 60 is a lot of goals. <laughs> it hadn't happened very often. And that kind of elite, elite, elite shooting that is so rare, that's what made him among the very best of the best. He's still at a level where the Leafs are going to give him you know the most spectacular contract probably in nhl history right and it's possibly dangerous could be yeah because if you're paying him for you know 14 million dollars a year when he's really a 10 million dollar player that's actually like a lot of surplus value and you still have to do it because he's utterly irreplaceable but yeah like that's not a painless decision if it goes against Mm -hmm. you for sure and i mean i think the fact that you know, we let off this section by saying, has has Matthews or has Marner closed the gap between him and Matthews? And we spent it all talking about Matthews because really the biggest determinant of the gap between Marner and Matthews is how good is Matthews? Yeah. 
right? Like, it's sort of not within Matthew's control necessarily, but it's like, it's more dependent on what Matthew does than what Marner does. It's honestly like, Marner felt to me like, he feels to me like he operates at the forefront of a group of really, really good players. And Matthew's last year was in a realm with McDavid of like superhuman players. And so Matthew's falling out of that tier brings him closer to Marner, who's right at the front of the charge. But still, we've seen Matt Matthews on another level that I don't think Marner can ever match. Mm-hmm. And I don't think can be expected to match. Because, like, Matthews is playing like a Hall of Fame player, no question. Or was. Um, you know, again, if you can score at the rate he was scoring where it's almost unstoppable, there are very few alternative skills that can make up for that. Like, that matters so much right. more than anything else either of them can do. Exactly. Like, all the things that Matthews is good at besides shooting are really helpful, mm-hmm. and they make him a great player. But the shooting is fundamentally what makes him special. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, we need him to recover that effectively, right? One thing that's worth noting, Matthews just is always going to miss X amount of games due to injury each year. I think we just need to accept that. And also, he's going to be limited in some games due to injury. Like, there's been a lot for a 24-year-old, 25-year-old guy. Mm -hmm. He's had a lot of, like, weird wrist and back injuries that are, like, reminiscent of, like, a 35-year-old guy. Yeah, and it's it's not encouraging. Like, he played 82 games in his rookie year, um, and now some of the subsequent seasons were attenuated because of COVID or something. But it's like, if you told me that he was going to retire and the only time he hit 82 games was his first season, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think we do have to account for that. And it's okay as long as the team is good enough to establish itself. And then you just have to hope he's his best self come playoff time, which is what we're doing now. Um, last night, now granted, he didn't score, but he set up Yarncroke and looked really really good doing it he said he's feeling a little bit better lately one of the few lines really the only line yesterday that was like consistently playing really well uh, perhaps the exception to the yarn croak has to be the by far the third best player on his line in order to be a valid top six line only works if he's playing with like supernova austin Matthews. yeah and you know matthews apparently was keen on having him on his line um pity to you alex kerfoot but uh <laughs> I mean, can you blame him though? Because say what you will about Yarncroke, the guy can finish at like a confident well, I, level, and Kerfoot has gone so cold. I also do find it funny where I don't know. Presumably, um, Matthew's like, "Oh, I'd like to have Yarncroke on my line," thinking it's like, "Okay, I'll get either Mar, I'll get Marner or Neander, and then Yarncroke." <laughs> and then Keith is like, "Psych, Kerfoot." Yarncroke. <laughs> <laughs> that would be kind of a funny bit if he just kept putting Kerfoot on his line in different permutations. Um, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, Yarncroke's first goal, like that was a absolute bomb. He, you know what, like, and I'm like, I'm still not a hundred percent easy in my mind about it in terms of that contract, because like Yarncroke basically is just like, I'll be competent and then I will add a bit of finishing. But goddamn, when that finishing kicks in, is it fun? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, it's we've gone through one year of it, and he's been clearly worth it this year. Yeah. So like, that's. That's helpful, right? Yeah, and like again, it's two point one million, so like, he doesn't have to be that great for this to work out. No, the so the the like it becomes bad if he becomes like not NHL player worthy. Yeah, like you know, you can live with it as long as he's doing what he's doing. He's gonna set a, a career high in points actually, 
Um, yeah, he has 17 goals on a, on 11 and a half expected goals this year. Yeah, that's a lot. That's really outstanding finishing, and you can see like visually, it's um, a lot of it is from the uh, right circle, which which is what you would expect for like a guy with his one timer. Yeah, like he the guy can absolutely put the puck in the net, and it, you know if he's the sort of guy where if you have to play him to fill a slot on the top six, you're okay with it. You know that was tip that was Michael Bunting's job until he had a really rough shred. But I'm certainly comfortable with Yarncroke there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, as regards to the Matthews and Marner conversation, um, yeah, I think it's very hard to talk about this in a way that doesn't seem like it's sliding Mitch Marner. And it's too bad because he's so goddamn good. But, yeah, it's this gap is determined by Matthews shooting as much as anything. And if that comes back, this conversation goes away. And if it doesn't, we got problems. Yep, pretty much. Okay, so we were going to do a couple of bad takes of the weeks. One of them is serious. One of them is trivial. Mm-hmm. Um, the serious one, James Reimer, much beloved in Leafland because he provided Toronto some goaltending after a stretch where they basically didn't have any, um, announced that he was going to refuse to wear a pride jersey. Uh, he issued a statement through the San Jose Sharks, who are his current employer, and he said, you know, in adherence to my Christian beliefs, uh, this is something that I feel like I have to refrain from doing. And he said he had love in his heart for everybody, but he doesn't support the lifestyle, basically. I'm conflating his statement with uh, things that he said to the press after, but that was the substance. Yeah, I mean, we're paraphrasing, but that's I think that's the core of it. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's... Look, so he, he is free to do this. We are free to judge him for it. And I am judging him pretty harshly. Like, it, it, it's a completely hypocritical statement. Yeah, like, I think people mix a lot of this stuff up about freedom of religion and, like, what opinions you can have. Look, and, and like, I'll own, I'm an atheist, but, like, I think that everyone should basically do their own thing. If it's not affecting other people, already it's none of my business. I fully accept everyone should have the the entire right to do that and again Reimer still has the right to do what he wants but I think less of you if your beliefs are we should treat these people worse and not respect them because of their sexuality I just I don't think that that's good yeah and I mean (laughs) he the the cognitive dissonance between I believe all groups should be supported and have love shown to them with I am not going to do this entirely performative gesture to show this group support and love is like, in fact, I'm going to actively choose not to do it. It's it, it's stunning to me, right? Because like he's saying these groups should be supported and loved, but like not by him. He's not willing to do anything to show them any support. Even something as simple as putting on a jersey, which does not mean you quote unquote support their lifestyle, whatever it is. It means you support their existence as human beings. That they are just a group of people who deserve to have rights the way all humans should have rights. Yeah, and like, you know, everyone says like, okay, he's just choosing not to wear a shirt. That's, yeah, again, he has the right to assert that. But then we, you know, I am inclined to ask follow-up questions like, do you think they should be able to get married? Like, this gets very quickly into a discussion of some very fundamental rights. And LGBT people are not people who have had the luxury of an unquestioned existence in society, certainly historically. And right now there's all sorts of, uh, of backlash and bad treatment of them. There are, you know, there's legislation in half the United States 
that's attacking trans people or taking thinly veiled veiled is not even the right word shots at um you know drag shows and stuff like that and it's like if you in that environment can't do like the bare minimum yes i think less of you for it you know these yeah, are people who it, need to be shown acceptance because the there are a lot of people who don't accept them and will do worse than not accept them so um you know yeah I, so i i think i think it's city i think i also think religion is like an excuse here yeah right there are plenty of religious people who support the queer community there's plenty of religious people who support you know various other communities like being religious does not does not preclude one from i don't know like sh showing support and understanding and being i don't know being human and showing showing an underrepresented and um disenfranchised community that there is a place that feels that they belong, that they deserve to be here, that they deserve to be here like everyone mm -hmm. deserves to be here and deserve to have fun. Yeah. Like there, and, and like there's, I, I feel like the religion is, is a very convenient excuse for that in a lot of ways, especially because, and this is a point that you made when we were chatting about this before, with almost every religion, one has to pick and choose the rules by which they abide to exist in modern society because religions are a set of constructs that were made many, many years ago that be, that are adapted to the times. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, like, there was a, a saying about Catholics who did this. They called them cafeteria Catholics because they like to pick and choose um, between the beliefs that were preferred to them. But I'm thinking, if you read the Bible, there are specific injunctions that no one abides by. You know, Leviticus is infamous for that sort of thing. And... I'm not trying to rain on religion. You can say like, okay, look, this book is what it is, but I feel like it adverts to our relationship to things that we may not be able to understand. I don't share that belief, but that's fine. It's just, you have to apply your own brain and your own heart to how you treat people. And you have to own the decision you make. If you say your religion is saying to treat these other people as lesser, I still think you're responsible for that. That's your choice as a moral human being. Um, this has gotten, you know, a bit higher level than hockey, but at the same time, it's like sports are one of the ways we express our values. And it's like, these people are under attack and have been for a long time. And it's disappointing to see someone look at all that and say, you know what? The more important thing is that I don't wear a shirt for 15 minutes. So, yeah, I like, I don't know that the pride sweaters really are. It, it, it's just, it's something so simple. It's literally just the idea of that being inclusive and welcoming people. It's not endorsing a set of values. It's not saying I am part of this community. It's literally saying there is a spot for you where we are. Mm -hmm. Like we will, we will welcome people from this community who have not been welcomed ever, who cannot take being welcomed as a luxury. Yeah. You know. Right. So yeah, it's, it's very, very disappointing. We've seen this, Reimer's far from the only player to do this, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's incredibly disappointing. His statement's incredibly hypocritical. Um, it's it's bullshit. Yeah, it sucks. Anyway, the, that's uh, the end of that one. On a more trivial note, this is just a general thing that people do and say. When the Leafs have a not-so-great game, they will say things like, 
I'd rather they get the bad game out of the way now. And I'm like, that's not how it works. <laughs> they can have the bad game and then they can just have another bad game later. If the Leafs had a finite amount of bad games to work through, we would have won the Stanley Cup a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the gambler's fallacy, like, writ large. But it's just, I find it said straight-faced by a lot of people. And I'm like, you know that's not how that works, right? There's no luxury because, like, you show up against the Tampa Bay Lightning, you're like, hey, we played out all our badness against the fucking Senators earlier this year, so we're ready for you guys. Um, it, by the same token, you know, people say, oh, okay, just win, baby, whatever. We got out of there with the two points. And I'm thinking, just win, baby, is in the playoffs. In the playoffs, if you get the win, doesn't matter how. In March, how you win actually does kind of matter because we don't care that much about the results so much as what it forebodes for what's going to happen when it's just win baby time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great way to put it. Yeah, so I I just found that odd. And like, I'm not, I'm not trying to rain on anyone in particular. I just see it a lot. Anyway, so uh, I, I get not everyone wants to uh, do a two-hour podcast analyzing every single thing the Leafs do or don't do, but I just found that strange. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. Okay. All right, so I think that's everything from us. Um, thank you to everyone for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. Uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. 